0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. And welcome back to another Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today uh, we're discussing a variety of topics surrounding, or where we, sorry, discuss a variety of topics surrounding the ever changing tech industry. Today I'm joined by Nick. Uh, Tim, Rebecca, and Nadav to discuss the topic of creating high-performance teams. So we'll start off with some introductions. I'll uh, I'll get you to start first, Nadav, uh, and introduce yourself.
1: My name is Nadav. I'm the head of engineering for O Media, um, and I'm a born-bred developer. That's my passion. That's what I love to do. And uh, we'll see how we can do that in high-performance environment. Awesome. Thanks, Nadav. Rebecca, I'll move on to you next.
2: Thanks, Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Slatter, Head of Technology for a system called Podium, which is a mortgage broker platform supporting Australia's network of around 6,000 brokers. Um, I've uh, previously been a, a BA in Solution Designer across uh, many facets of the finance industry, and I'm passionate about pragmatic tech with the quality build uh, to enable our business, not the other way around.
3: Awesome. Thanks, that Rebecca. And Nick? Hi, everyone. Uh, Nick Hayden, I'm Engineering Manager at Linktree, which is the industry-leading and bio service, helping creators to grow their audience, uh, focused on software development teams and how we can all work well together. Awesome. And last but not least, Tim.
4: Thanks, Matt. And um, I have to say, it's an honor to be asked to do this. And hello, everyone. Um, I'm Tim Stokes. Uh, I've currently just started working with Boeing, helping with their um, large-scale cloud Cloud migration, and um, just prior to to that, my my previous role was GM of Software engin- Engineering at
0: TPG. Awesome, thanks, for that Tim. So after that, we'll get straight into the kind of the questions now. Where we'll start off, actually, Tim, it's it's your question first. So feel free to again, we'll start with you, Tim. I'll get you to give some context behind the question, and then we'll move around. But feel free to for jump in, and we'll get some discussion going. But Tim, your question was where what do we mean by performance? and how do we measure it? So maybe get to, to give some context behind that and then also answer yourself to start off with.
4: Yeah, sure. So I guess um, the context to the question is to to talk about a goal this defined by um, wanting, wanting to have a high-performing team well, then just log- logically I'm thinking, well, the first thing we have to do is define what we mean by high, high performance. And then we can think about, well, how would we, how would we achieve that type of teams, team? So um, and the other thing that, that I think is really interesting about this terminology of high performance is that in other domains, um, it means something that I think is quite different to what it means for us. So for example, in Formula One, uh, you know, uh, last month down in Melbourne, Formula One was going on. Um, high performance in that domain is uh, means something very different to what we think about as high performance in a team. Um, I think in, in, in software delivery, high performance is really seems to be translated into efficiencies, like squeezing every ounce of capacity out of the team. But uh, if you think about Efficiency as it relates to Formula One, for example, well, there's there's no efficiency to it at all. It's like the most inefficient way of getting from A to B in the world. It's more expensive, it's more expensive than you know, aeroplanes. It's more ex- like to get from one place to another. So that's really interesting that we talk about high performance, but most people translate that into cost-cutting into constraints on costs? How do we kind of squeeze value out of the mid most minimal amount of um, resources possible? So this is why I think it's important to ask ourselves this question. Is high performance important to us as a business? And if it's not, we need to probably use other terminology. Awesome.
0: Thanks, yeah. Tim. Any- yeah, Tim? Anyone want to jump in first there?
2: Absolutely. Tim, I think that's an excellent analogy. Uh, I I do slightly disagree, though, in that uh, I think that there are a lot of similarities between an F1 team, maybe not the output of a very fast car, but the F1 team itself and a tech team. And I think it actually comes down to having very explicit definition of what your role is and what the expectation is. The guy who's on the rear left-hand tyre to change that, that's all they do. They know that they're not supposed to be on the right-hand side. They, they are very clear. That's what they got to do, and they've got to do it within, you know, a nanosecond, and, and off they go. And that's all they got to do, and that's all they need to worry about. And I think if we're clear out with our teams as to what we're expecting them to do, what their role is, um, then we can we can kind of drive that high performance. I, I, I see it myself in, in, in certainly um, moving into new teams and so forth where it's unclear for a junior developer if they're just supposed to be, say, code cutters or if they are expected to do a bit more of the investigative type work? Are they supposed to do a bit more um, design and analysis? Are they supposed to see what else is happening whilst the hood is open? Things like that. Um, You know, certainly my expectation for them is, no, they don't need to do that. That's for our senior designers and developers to worry about. All I need you to worry about is what we're asking you to do for this tiny little thing. And if they're doing that well, then we can start to drive through higher performance.
3: Awesome. Mm. Yeah. For me, uh, I, th- I think of it in terms of like how much propulsion or self propulsion the team has. So um, every, every team, no matter where you are, has some sort of like amount that they can keep going before they start to hit a wall. So at a junior level, that might mean you could drop the manager off for two weeks and that junior team is going to be able to keep doing their list of tickets, getting through it. That's all good. And I think that is high performance for that level. But then at like a senior executive level, like the CEO could step out for maybe a year and that senior executives are able to keep the company going and uh, keep that self-propulsion moving forward, uh, which for me then that defines high performance for that level. Um, And I guess following on to what Rebecca said is as long as you can define the level of what you want, whether that is a guy changing the left rear tyre or it is a guy just pulling out a ticket out of Jira or it is someone doing a whole marketing strategy, whatever it is. The definition of performance for me is like, how much can that person work uh, in isolation or, or without like, uh, explicit direction um, for what their, what their role is, what their task is.
4: Well, yeah. that That's interesting. Can I just kind of ask, well, it's kind of the second half of my question, which is how do, how do we measure, you know, performance or, in a way, how do we measure value? And the reason why I wanted to ask this second part of the question is because I think uh, you know it's common to measure velocity or you know measure the cadence of you know how how much people are working, um, and and that's kind of a, a measure of speed or how much we're kind of burning the fuel or wearing out the tires. But is it a true measure of the value delivered? And how how are people kind of um, measuring actual business value? That oh, it that feature did increase sales, or it did increase engagement with customers, or whatever
0: or whatever the outcome was yeah. expected. Yeah, um, yeah. Nadav, I might be so, you to jump in on this one. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah go on. it's a good segue as well. So, and you'll probably find me referring to it a lot. But there's something that's called DORA, which is the DevOps Research and Assessment Program by Google. And uh, the reason I'm gonna to refer to it a lot is because it's the research and the facts and the conclusion driven out of these facts. And one of the things, first of all, but to answer your second part of the question first, one of the ways to measure performance is to measure your DORA metrics. Um, and it, it's interesting, cause you say performance, but performance of what, right? A team does many, many things. Uh, and DORA specifically optimizes for speed. So to use your F1 analogy, F1 teams might not be uh, monetarily efficient, but they are very well optimized for speed, the time it takes them to replace a tire is in the seconds, right? So then it's not that they're inefficient, they're just optimized for different things. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other things that DORA measures or kind of one of the characteristics of an elite team in DORA is working in small batches, which is a prerequisite to working in trunk-based development, for instance. Now, it doesn't matter matter whether you support or not the, the, um, the practice. But the notion of working in small batches means that everything that you do is del- can be delivered quickly. It has represent- representable value to the business, um, and it's easy to estimate. And there's, there's a few other benefits to it as well. So if you're looking for, then if you optimize for speed of delivery and everything that you do is in small batches and these small batches represent value to the business and it's like this chain of cascading things then you know for a fact that you have an elite team that is delivering value delivering quickly and efficiently right so these metrics i think are great in are a great way to start uh but one of the challenges if you ever try to implement dora is that you can't just do one of these things dora is many things and elite team practices all of those things not half of them so it's, it's quite an interesting, and it's a great question, by the way. Awesome. Thanks,
0: Sandra Dab. Does anyone have any more they want to jump in and add, add to that one?
1: I actually
3: do have Nick? one other thing I'd like to add on that is just, um, and it's kind of a silly quote, but a, a metric starts being useless once you start calling it a metric. And once you start telling a team, like, we're judging you on this thing, they will optimize to do that. <laughs> if yeah. it is tickets close, we will open 100 tickets for change letter A, B, C, and then we'll close them because we've now hit our metric. So I guess finding whatever metrics you're gonna use and making sure that they are what you actually want. If the team totally gained that metric for whatever reason, like, would you still be happy with the result?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just shed some light on it because this is really interesting. We've had exactly that uh, conversation on an, an executive level. Uh, and one of the conclusions we reached is that if you look at specifically Dora, and again, this is a well-researched body of work, is that each one of these metrics can be easily gamed. But if you're met- monitoring all of them, um, you 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 can't. Like, it's almost like as if you can't. But the point is that you don't need to ev- uh, either. Like, you don't measure the teams on it. This is just uh, an indicator for how you're progressing in getting to elite status, right? The teams, a high-performing team knows that they're highly performed. Like that's, it's just, it's the fact.
0: Awesome.
1: Rebecca, were you gonna jump in then?
2: Yeah, it was. I was, I, I completely agree. And I have seen it before where uh, the system can get gamed and where it becomes probably challenging for people leaders is to unfortunately have to switch it more from quantitative to qualitative into Reviewing people on not what they've done, but how they've been able to do it. It's very well to have. A, you can certainly have um, a whole series of engineers sitting away in their room and delivering on Jira cards, and then you know can do it in in you know half the time than say a junior person or or, or someone else in the team. That's great in terms of the end delivery, but is that really going to drive a high-performing team? No, it's not. You need to share that knowledge. You need to be able to work with others. You need to be able to to broaden that experience and include how you actually got to that solution.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Sarah, Rebecca. Look, conscious of time, so we'll uh, appreciate everyone's answers, and I think they were all very very well put together. We'll move on to the second question, which is brought forward by Nick, which is, how can you keep an existing high-performing team motivated? and performing well in the face of changing product roadmaps and other events like staff or management turnover. So maybe get you to give some context and also kick us off with that one, Nick.
3: Yeah, so I guess this question is really around, you can have a great high performing team, they're hitting all your metrics, you're really happy with what they're doing, but then uh, you've got a CEO that just like changes the roadmap every three weeks because he's just got a great idea, And then I find like over time, that's going to start sapping that motivation from your team, they're going to get really invested in one thing and then they've got to jump to another and they never complete anything. Uh, And then the second part of that is uh, you might have a a high performing team of, say, junior to senior developers and then their engineering manager leaves, their tech lead leaves, and then suddenly someone that they really liked has left and then the, the team's performance starts to drop there. Awesome. Thanks. Anyone want to
0: jump in first? Tim, let's go with you.
4: Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, look, one thing that I found is really useful is to try to make sure that everyone has um, a clear vision of of even the highest level strategy of the company. Um, What are the strategic outcomes, but also to carry that context through to, our systems of record for, you know, our our work. So every story down into every task, if we use language that carries that context, then um, rather than people feeling like they have a task to do, then they can see that this is really just the means to an end and, and, you know, provides that why they turn up at work each day kind of context that can really help people with, feeling like they're, that they're adding value and, and that they turn up at work for a purpose um, beyond getting paid the salary. So, um, and then I guess just some of the other things is making sure that there are places in our process to recognise when people have completed work rather than just assume that, well, that's just assumed and and here's the next task, but to go, great job, or we've reached this milestone let's celebrate i think those things are really important but it's all contextual really so that's my my thought i wanted to add
2: awesome yeah i completely agree tim i think keeping goals and delivery targets small Enough so, even in a changing roadmap, you can still have the opportunity to to showcase and celebrate what you have been able to deliver. I think that is really important. That recognition of, of right, whilst the whilst you know the next priority might have adjusted, what you have done is still important. But with that in itself, I, I would I would also suggest that any um, uh, product roadmap changes should still align to the core strategy of what you're trying to deliver. That way. If you have a strong core strategy and a North Star, as it were, that your your team can, can drive towards and they can see that whilst uh, on the way there might be changes and adjustments in how we might do things or what, there might be new focuses coming in, they can appreciate that and go, right, we've got to get over that, but we're still heading towards this end state. I think that in itself um, can keep people motivated and, and it can also um, probably reduce the the large changes that we see into sort of little road bumps. You get over the road bumps okay. It's when you've got a mountain suddenly put in the way. That's when it can be get, get really demotivating. And I think sort of keeping that North Star um, clear in people's minds, I think, is important.
1: Thanks, Matt. And Nadav, what are your thoughts? Yeah, first of all, 100%. I agree with both of you 100%. Uh, but I think as well, uh, Nick, your question is a bit of a composite because it's it kind of comprises uh, cultural aspects and operational aspects of a business. Now, I'll start with the cultural bit because I think it's interesting because a lot of the stuff turnover, I think that we've seen, especially in the last couple of years, uh, can be attributed to some of these uh, things, which is, look, at the end of the day, as a company, we can either choose to be the great place to work for everybody, so then we focus on being having great facilities or flexible working and all those things to kind of alleviate uh, churn and stuff turnover. Or you can be a very value driven organization like a military organization. So I've started my career in the army. Um, In the army, uh, you don't have a lot of flexibility and working conditions are not great, uh, but you always have a hill to climb over and fight over. And some people make a living and uh, uh, drive a lot of meaning out of that. So I think making sure that first of all identifying what kind of organizations you are, and then giving that uh, to your employees is super important and you're not gonna attract everybody, right? And turnover is inevitable at the end of the day. And I think the other part that kind of everybody has been talking to is nobody, I think, especially for engineers, context switching is very difficult. So nobody likes to change what they're working on a constant basis, right? Um, But I think one of the things that we've noticed is that especially when we applied lean product management Uh, in our organization is that actually the roadmap is driven uh, from the teams, so bottom up rather than top down. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows uh, what your customer needs better than the people engaging with the customers day in and day out. Um, And if these are your sales team, just bring them closer to your engineering uh, teams. So they will then get uh, almost a glimpse into what the world is like. And by doing that also, once you make an impact, it's very visible because you can see the people who are selling it. You can see the people engaging with your product. I think a lot of, especially software, especially knowledge workers in general, drive a lot of meanings out of this, uh, which is fantastic. Um, But again, I don't think you'll be able to cater for everybody because some people optimize their career to earn as much as they can. Some people optimize to just gain as much knowledge. Uh, And if that is the case, for the moment you have nothing left to teach them, no matter how great you are or your organization is, uh, they'll jump ship to somewhere else where they can learn. Right, so optimizing for different things.
0: Awesome, thanks Nadal, that's interesting. Anyone else have anything to, to add to this one, on this question?
3: Yeah, i will just add that I'm a big fan of the, um, the recognition of work completed. I think um, it's really easy to ignore it sometimes and be like, cool, that feature's out, let's go to the next one. But to to stop and be like, you four people have done really good at getting this thing out and recognizing that and making sure that it's shared not only with the immediate team, but uh, but wider as well. I think that's a, a great idea. Yeah.
0: And, and now you can actually maybe do something. Now COVID's uh, slowly moving away. You might be able to go to dinner together or something, <laughs> which was, wasn't a thing. Um, uh, what was
4: Matt, I was just yeah. going to mention um, tools as well, you know, um, tool, some some decent tools like a, a decent laptop, things like that. They, they may seem trivial, but it's... Um, and and you know engineers can go and buy their own equipment, but with certain policies, then often they can't actually use that to do their roles. Um, but just something that that is um, arguably set up well to do their job function um, can mean, can mean a huge amount. And it's not even about the the tool or tech itself. In many cases, it's about feeling like they've been set up for success. And the opposite can really feel quite literally like they're being asked to do their jobs with one
0: hand tied behind their back. Awesome, great. Thanks for that, Tim. Uh appreciate all the answers. So we'll move on to to the third question now, which is is yours, Rebecca, which is how do you continue to expect and drive high performance in what has become an employee's marketplace? For example, do we do we need to balance high performance benchmarks with retention measures in order to retain good team members while striving for better performance. So, yeah, I'll get you to also give some context and, and kick us off there.
2: Yeah, certainly. It's a, probably a little bit of a wordy question, and it's coming from a place uh, close to my heart over the last, certainly, two years where uh, suddenly it became an environment where your uh, team were had the you know, the world of options at their feet. No longer was were people restricted to workplaces that, we're in the same city. We're in the same state, um, and it's not even within the same country anymore. People, you know, are, are so open to working from home, and that's that's almost the expectation now. That uh, you don't need to search for new roles or new opportunities in your in your, in your hometown or your home state. Uh, so there is it is certainly, in my opinion, an, an employees marketplace at the moment. Whilst that might be changing in the in the future as borders open up and so forth, but because of that, trying to retain high performing team members, I've found really, really difficult. Um, And particularly when you are going through, say, organisational change, you know, Nick mentioned you before around, you know, change of priorities, a change of work and so forth, that context switching, those sorts of difficulties, sometimes uh, it, it can get to the point, particularly now where people are no longer sort of putting up with that, they're just going to find other things. So I guess my question to the group is, you know, in this sort of environment, what are you doing in order to retain that high performing team that you have?
0: Awesome. Thanks, Nadav. Let's let's go with you first. I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. First of all, I think we I definitely, and I think all of us share your pain. Um, and it's not it's not strictly I think only because of COVID and the new ways of working that we've adopted. It's also specifically in Australia we have less talent coming in, uh, and the industry has seen other growth. So I think we're all definitely experiencing it one of the things that we've done to tackle it is we have actually reinvented our EVP or our employee value proposition. And we kind of, rather than keep going what we had, we went to the teams and asked them, who, who do you think, who do you want to be? Who, who are we? Um, and we really went through almost like a branding exercise to, to decide, what do we care about? And we found out, for instance, that we care about using progressive progressive tools and and in tools, tools and methods. Oh, and we we really care about being approachable. We really care about being inquisitive, uh, and we took all these things and we created a brand out of it. And one of the benefits that it netted us is that now, Everybody, because everybody contributed to it, even if you don't 100% agree to it, you bought into it, um, and now you have a group of people who have a stronger bond than they did before. They have they they identify with what we do and who we are, um, and they want to prove that they live up to the values. Um, mm-hmm. And we found that that increased our retention like almost um, exponentially. In the sense that I've seen personally, um, I think we've had about retention rate of 1.5 years last year, and it went up. We I don't think we've lost any people from December. So we've which is an amazing considering the size of the teams that we have, we have over uh, 40 engineers. Um, so definitely needed us good results. Yeah. Uh, but as well, I think this is one of those things that every organization has to find out what will work for them, and organizations are very vastly different. Um, it's, it's an interesting exploration uh, journey that you can take yeah. as, a, as a leadership team. Awesome.
0: Thanks for that, and, uh, Tim, i might get you to jump in on this one next.
4: Uh, yeah, so I was thinking, you know, one of those things that um, can really retain those um, great key people is to push decision-making down and not have to make all the technical decisions as a, as a technical leader, just trust that, the motivation uh, and ownership that comes from the person making a decision and then feeling like they're going to own that decision, um, it can be a, it can be a really strong um, premise on which someone decides to go. Oh, I'm going to stay because they, um, you know, they're engaged in that outcome. But at the same time, it also puts pressure on. Innovation. If you know, if, if people want to go, let's try this new technology, and they're passionate about it, and then you, you know, you invest in that, then there's also pressure on innovation. In, in, in that, if 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 that person then does leave, the risk is greater. So it's mm-hmm. a complex question. It's a very good and complex question to ask because it's no, there's no simple answer.
0: Thanks, that Tim and, and Nick. What are your thoughts on this?
3: Yeah, um, I mean Linktree is in a little bit of a different position because we are, uh, the company does a lot to pull in new employees, <laughs> like we are fully remote, we have some great employee programs, which um, forgetting the work, I think that really does help um, to retain people. Uh, in terms of work, I mean, I think for me, what I've found with, I guess, employees across all, whether high performing or not, is giving time to rest after launches and accepting that like, if you do something and it's a, we're doing a big feature launch and we'll just put it out into the world, recognizing it, like we said before, and then like, cool, just monitor it for a a week or two and like, just kind of recalibrate, get back to your normal self. And and using another sport analogy is looking at uh, how athletes train, right? They're not 100% every day, 100% of the year, you just get injured you'll hurt yourself you'll burn out so make sure that like cool now is the time to go really hard like it's going to be difficult for a month two months whatever it is and then on the other side of that like great we did it let's let's relax and take some time now um and and having that understanding not just on a on a line manager level but kind of up the business as well of like cool this team's done a lot recently let's let's uh the, the next feature can wait a little bit yeah um, especially awesome. if you're not in not that really grindy um, sort of environment yeah. yeah I was gonna
4: just um, respond to that if that's okay but um, there's this in engineering principle about you know when we're running our servers and we we want to run them at around you know 80 percent capacity because if we know if if we get to to near a hundred percent you know resource utilization, our throughput will just die. So this idea um, does translate to how we kind of have to organize our work as well. Um, And another way to think about it is this, that if you ask someone that arguably does one task a day, for example, and they're 99% busy, then that task will take them 100 days. You know, the throughput will just, that's not a trick. It's just maths. So. So this um, this is really this is really, really good point to make sure that we set the right kind of cadence uh, and not overload people because it will actually hurt our throughput.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, guys. You know, making sure that people aren't overloaded, giving space to sort of sit back, um, reflect on what has been achieved or delivered, or what went what didn't go so well, and then therefore what would what would we do different next time, um, and 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 give space to sort of. Um, I guess, renew yourself and everything. I think that is key. And, you know, Nick, what you mentioned before, uh, and Nadava around building that culture on the team, I think that is also critical. I, we've worked very hard to try and uh, focus on that as well. I find it, I, I think there's some unique challenges depending on what the actual tech is. Um, in finance, it's hugely legacy uh, and it's, not sexy no one wants to work on on green screen mainframes um you know everyone wants to go work for linktree so you know that's what that's also a real challenge is, is in in myself is trying to retain that those high performing um but also those probably you know uh more legacy skills that uh, are getting rarer and rarer in the workplace thanks guys
1: awesome anyone anyway, anyone else have anything to they want to add just uh, to tim's uh, point about working at 100% uh, 80 versus 100 percent throughput, I think, you know, I would love to uh, hear the argument of how do you sell that to uh, to executive leadership? Because one of the biggest challenges is that I have met through my career, if whenever I need to compare engineering performance to any other part of the organization, it's always to sales performance. And sales performance, they do try to shoot on all cylinders all the time. So it's like a work hard, party hard kind of environment. Um, but I think the, uh, the the more insidious thing in what you're saying is that it's so inherently um, obvious that it's it's almost hard to defend, in the sense that oh why aren't your teams working at hundred percent capacity all the time? Um, but well,
2: yeah. I would actually say Nadav that they are that twenty percent. It is actually work. It's just a different type of work. They're still, you know, they're still working. It's that what they're doing. It may not necessarily be developing code cutting or, or, or unit testing or whatever it's that they're starting to design and think about what's coming up next or oh, they're meeting with clients that's still work I, I i don't think um you know why the business industry reflects that enough that you know meeting with your clients meeting ta- staff team meetings training that's still work that's that's not
0: um that's not free time awesome yeah thanks awesome appreciate everyone's answer thanks for your question rebecca And moving on to the last question here, which is brought forward by Nadav, which is how much will you invest in training slash upskilling of existing staff in order to achieve high performance before you decide to let go of old staff in favor of new talent with more relevant skill sets? So yeah, kick kick this off, and yeah, maybe give some context as well. Thanks.
1: So I'll give a little bit of context, and at the risk of biasing uh, the conversation, <laughs> um, but look, like I said, we, we are we've looked into, and we are transitioning into adopting uh, DORA practices and uh, reaching to elite status ourselves. Um, but one of the things that we found out going on the journey is that there's a lot of skill sets, skill sets that I don't necessarily have, skill sets that my teams and other teams within the organisations are going to have to acquire. So obviously. We're gonna train and upskill people, but also we've had an interesting conversation: is uh, is there is such a thing as too much training? At which point we say, well, we don't have the right talent. Do we need to go and get new talent that can teach either teach us, or get new talent to replace the existing talent? Now again, my, my background is in military, so I'm heavily biased towards the military does a really good work a good job at upskilling and training, I think, more than any other organization. So I think with enough time and money, you can take a monkey, teach it to make an espresso and land it on the moon. But <laughs> the uh, the reality is that I don't I don't know what other people's opinions are. So I'll be very keen to hear yours. Awesome.
3: Nick, I'll get you to jump in first. Here. Oh, you've given me the hardest
1: one. <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've going to you first in a little bit.
3: <laughs> uh, oh, no. Um, I, mean, I, I certainly agree that, like, for myself and I think for for everyone, like, pretty much everyone can learn pretty much anything um, given, you know, an infinite time scale. Um, for me, I always try to, when I'm hiring people, I always look for that, like, motivation and personality in what they do, rather than a, a specific skill set. Um, although, of course, you do need skills at a certain point. Um, and I think if you're hiring for those attributes, you can sort of trust that they'll get there. For for staff, that oh, it's such a hard question, right? Like, I mean, the the simplest and most like cutthroat is like fire the team, hire a new team. But of course, that's not like how we can work in the real world. Um, and I'm not really too sure on like how we can um, yeah, how we can let go of these old stuff. I mean train them as long as you can. People will always be more loyal to the organization if you are training them if you are showing faith that you believe they can get to um, where you need them to be. And then maybe at a certain point it just becomes that discussion of like, hey, this becomes a performance thing now and um, you know we need you to do this task and you're you're not getting there for whatever reason and then um either you know you've you've got to get better at it or you need to find a, another place to go to and as as harsh as that sounds sometimes yeah.
0: thanks rebecca any, any more ideas on that
2: yeah i was just thinking of reflecting on nick's answer to the question and for me it's certainly it's I agree you you can teach an awful lot of skill and I've seen the most you know trained people have gone through you know 100 courses and they still don't know anything and it's all it's less around what they've been tried to be taught but more around their own behavior and personality of want to learn and if I think if there's the intention there of wanting to to learn wanting to do new things uh that's going to reflect in that output and I think that's where you you allow probably a little bit more patience than someone who who's just sort of there's, oh, yeah. I've read the book. I know what to do now. And they actually don't have a clue. Um, and I think it's it's more around the behaviour of the people that you're trying to get there. Trying and, and changing behaviour is the, the hardest thing to do. You you just cannot change it. And that's where you need to going back to an earlier question that we had was around less around the what, but more around the how. Do people uh, perform? That's when it might become a performance discussion that you know that Nick suggested. If if their behaviour isn't quite there, then that's a probably a performance concern. But I I also agree with Nick that building loyalty as well. I think if you can, as an organisation and as people leaders, we can show support of people that want to learn, that are trying hard. Their their output may not be quite there yet, but you know that with good mentorship and coaching, um, you know, as opposed to sort of the more um, you know, formal training, you know, that they're going to get there in, in, say, three, six, however many months or years, then, you know, that will build loyalty um, and that in itself, you know, is is absolutely
0: priceless. Thanks, Rebecca. Tim, I just see you are, you, are you on mute then. You ready to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think um, I, ha- I have this
4: interview question I've been asking for, like, decades. Um well, since it was invented, really, but um, I ask, okay, so if you if you go to a browser and you type in you know something and press enter, what happens next? How does how does the internet work? Um, and so uh, it covers a lot of areas. You know, API designers, front end developers, they all kind of should know this stuff, bread and butter stuff. So um, the reason I bring you up here is because I've noticed that. Um, it's not necessarily about someone that's freshly trained versus someone that has had a lot of experience and perhaps needs retraining. It's also people that have grown up in a world where this type of technology, these type of technologies just exist. So, you know, you ask someone, when I ask uh, someone who's got less experience, then they tend to have been born in a different time period, and I ask this question, and they look at me as if I'm asking them a trick question. Like, what do you mean? How does the internet work? That's just, this, is, this is just this, this is this is the world, isn't it? And so you ask someone who may have been doing a different type of software engineering um, with lots of experience, and yeah, they mean they may need more training. But I'm a big supporter of retraining. Um, and another quick story is um, uh, so. Before COVID, when I was at Qantas, um, uh, Alan Joyce announced that there's going to be a new pilot training program uh, and they were going to invest in in training all of these pilots because they predicted that within five to 10 years or, or something like that, then the world would have a shortage of pilots. So they wanted to do something about it. So very strategic thinking. And then I guess the question was asked, well, what if we invest all this money in these pilots and they just leave and go and work for other airlines? And the answer was, well, it doesn't matter. We've increased the number of trained and skilled people in the world that are required, and so it it benefits everybody, including us. We get the benefit either way. If they work for someone else, that will I mean there's another pilot somewhere that we can that can come and work for us. So I think that this is a really kind of um, smart attitude to take as it relates to training people especially in the current market where we might think, well, we could invest in training someone and they might leave. Well, it's kind of raised, it's raised the tide for everybody in the industry in that sense. So that's, that's an interesting story, I think. Awesome. Thanks.
1: Thanks. I just, um, I'll just kind of, something that Nick said, I think it was that, yeah, Thank you. First of all, thank you. And it's it's interesting. I found it very interesting that um, like where, where the threshold is for for everybody in terms of how much do you train? How much do you, um, like when do you actually give up? But it's, I think I agree as well that it does build loyalty. One of the, the things that come to mind is that what a good message it sends that as an organization we persevere and invest, right? Instead of saying, oh, you know, you're not up to scratch. So uh, good luck and we'll find someone else that is. Um, so yeah, thank you. So maybe Rebecca, you said that apologies.
0: Anyone else want to jump in with some final words on on this one. Awesome. Well, appreciate all your answers. They're uh, well, very thorough and I think there's some, there's some good ideas all around for people to jump in and listen to. But I think we'll leave it there for now. But I want to say thank you all for joining me on the podcast and providing interesting insights uh, for senior managers and those moving into kind of leadership positions surrounding creating high-performance teams. So thank you all for listening and I look forward to catching you next time on the next podcast.